The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. If you haven't turned the show off yet, here's Brandon. Welcome back to the Brandon Peters Show and our continued adventures through Tim Burton's Big Retrospective. Tim Burton. As always with me on this quest, Scott Mendelson from The Rap. W-R-A-P. Oh, fuck. W-R-A-P. Not like him dropping rhymes and things like that <laughs> yeah big life change um by the time you read you listen to this i'll hopefully have more on the points on the board so to speak but well, i'm recording this at the end of my third day at the institute at the uh, trade magazine mm-hmm. uh it's interesting i mean obviously i i i don't want to go into too many whatever details because hopefully i'll feel more confident about my whatever by the time you listen to this in the first place but it's who, it's a learning who, curve who's got the hot office romance going on currently over there oh the i don't know all right scott i want the if gossip. i did i wouldn't tell you i want the rap on the rap <laughs> golly all right well uh there's some romance in this episode today uh their fifth installment of the tim burton retrospective this one i could call August and everything after. <laughs> um, but uh, we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be going over a animated series called The World of Stain Boy, Big Fish from two thousand three, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory from two thousand five, and Corpse Bride also from two thousand five. Like every great director, they have a year where there's a twofer. So this was his Munich. <laughs> this is Munich. <laughs> All right, or, or maybe his Amistad. We shall see. We shall yes. see as we get we get into it. We'll we'll drive right into this uh, world of Stain Boy. Now this this what was the a fuck is Stain Boy, Brandon. Stain Boy. There's a house in Burbank where no one there dares. Enter the house of the girl who just stares. So it's up to you. Now get over there! And don't make a mess! Well, it's created by Tony Grillo. Uh, Tim Burton, of course, directed it. uh, The cast is Glenn Shaddix, who would work with Burton, Lisa Marie, then her final collaboration with Tim Burton, Will Amato, Michael R. Viner, with music by Danny Elfman and Jason Wells, animation by Flinch Studio. Uh, Local superhero Stainboy hunts down oddball villains harnessing bizarre powers. It's a six-part flash animation, um, and they're about three in minutes, 40 seconds to a yeah, little over five. Over under four minutes, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the titles are Stare Girl, that's uh, Toxic Boy, Bowling Ball Head, Robot Boy, Matchstick Girl, and The Origin 
of Stain Boy. Uh, they first appeared. Stain Boy first appeared in two short poems in the Melancholy Death of Oyster Boy and Other Stories by Tim Burton. So I had that book. Did you? It did not make me cooler in school. No. Is that the one they sold at Hot Topic? Uh, possibly. I bought it okay. at a Borders. Okay. Back in the day, Borders was a place you went to buy books that wasn't the internet. Who'd have thought Barnes & Noble would win that battle and still Not be me, around? because I always freaking prefer Borders. I always, well, I, do, I was a Borders person myself. Barnes & Noble always felt slash feels like a tomb. There's a certain cold... Ice, icy. I mean, borders always felt warmer and more welcoming to me. Yeah, I always, I always went to borders as well. Uh, the borders where I grew up, it was once a children's palace, then became a Best Buy, and then became a Borders uh, because the be- well, children's palace went out of business. The Best Buy moved to a bigger building, and then Borders was there. And I don't know, they had overpriced stuff, but it, yeah, like you said, there was sort of a warmth to it. Uh, but Barnes and Noble, oh. I don't. Maybe it was all the side gigs they got going on in there. Like Borders had coffee too, but Barnes and Noble like got into the Kindle. They had the Nook, that was their thing. Yes. Um, they also had. They sold like. Well, now they have like puzzles and board games and Funko Pops and. Well, who doesn't sell Punko Pops nowadays, honestly? What uh, always amused me about Barnes & Noble is their DVDs and Blu-rays were so friggin' expensive because mm-hmm. they were usually, you know, retail price. Then yep. I had a big sale. They were just, hey, you could now buy them for about what you could buy them anywhere else. Yeah. Unlike where uh, Barnes & Noble, they have the Criterion sales that happen where they're 50% off and you're actually saving money. Yeah. And then they'll that, do- was, that was a weird uh, exception to the rule. Yeah. And BBC um, has those 50% percent off their titles as well with Barnes and Noble uh, throughout the year. So maybe, So uh, was was Tim Burton just bored during this period and decided to do a six episode flash? I don't, I don't know. So these these are like basically they have a similar structure to all of them. Uh and the opening and closing is just recycled animation. Um the Stainboy guy goes to his like chief who's sitting by a desk who's who's very funny by the way. Yes, voiced by Glenn <laughs> Shaddix and he's like talks about someone to go get. So then he goes and confronts the person immediately. That that animation anime character does some funky stuff. He goes back to the chief and then it's over. And it's, it's basically, you know, the part of Phineas and Ferb with Platypus gets or Barry the Platypus gets sent on yet another e- uh, mission by his, the boss. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, yeah, I mean, they're you can watch them all in like 15 minutes, give or take. They're on YouTube, yeah, in decent quality, yeah, decent, um, good quality. I don't think I don't, I don't know that they've ever been on a, any sort of official release of sorts or anything, but they're flash, so they were probably originally intended to be free on the web, especially if it's 2000, 2001. There's no paywall for stuff like this, no, I wouldn't imagine. And they're funny, they're clever, they're they're amusing. Mm-hmm. I'm just weirdly curious as to why they exist yeah and i don't mean obviously that's not a criticism you know artists like to make art um but it's sort of like well you know i've i've maybe i just i just finished planet of the apes which maybe didn't go all that well for me and maybe this animation studio pitched it to him and was like yeah go for it um Anyway, I don't want to be dismissive over something that I thought was perfectly entertaining. No, it's it's fine. I mean, there's nothing deep to talk about with it. It's the animation. Yeah, it's good clarity. I don't know if they've been polished up for for now. 
uh, now that they're on YouTube and whatnot. But um, yeah, there's some good Snickers to have with it. You'll watch. I mean, you could probably finish it in like 22 minutes, the whole thing, if that, if that, because the first one's like three and a half minutes, and I think yeah, they're all pretty short. The last one's like five and a half. Um, but but the, there's only content for about the first four minutes. Yeah, there's a lot of credit. Like there's like yeah. 45 seconds of it will be credits <laughs> at the end. Um, but yeah, it's a. I, I was like, oh, this is gonna be garbage, and then they're all short, and then they're, like, they're snickered a couple times. They're they're kind of they're kind of fun, um, and we don't really need to talk about them longer than it would take you to watch them. But pretty much, we're I don't, already halfway through. Aside from Glenn Shaddix and. Lisa Marie, that's about the most Burtonisms you can get, aside from the the look of the animation. Um, it, it did feel very uh, liquid television, if you remember that show on MTV. Oh, yeah. They felt like it could have popped up in there for a sec. But yeah, uh, highly recommend it if you have 15 minutes to kill. There you go. That's uh, the uh, Stain Boy. All right. So now we'll move on to one of the best rebounds in cinema history, Big Fish. For every father with a story to tell. Which one's it going to be? The one about the witch. For every child. Bravo Company, go! Who had a hero to believe in. Comes a movie that critics are calling Tim Burton's masterpiece. It's breathtaking, unforgettable, a perfect film. Been nominated for four Golden Globes, including Best Picture of the Year. Big Fish, rated PG-13. Now playing in select cities. Opens everywhere Friday. Burton directs, uh, written by John August, based on the novel Big Fish: Colon, a novel of mythic proportions by Daniel Wallace. This one stars Ewan McGregor, Albert Finney, Billy Crudup, Jessica Lange, Helena Bonham Carter, Allison Lohman, Robert. Guillaume, Guillaume, forget how to pronounce his name. Uh, Marion Cotillard, um, Matthew McGorry, David Denman, Missy Pyle, Steve Buscemi, Miley Cyrus, Deep Roy, and Danny DeVito. A frustrated son tries to determine the fact from fiction in his dying father's life. Now, Scott, I remember when this came out, and this is one of those movies, this had some Oscar buzz going for it, which resulted in one nomination for original score. I remember people being like, it's Burton's time. Well, this is the Finney one. did get a nomination too, or am I mistaken? There's Golden Globes liked it a lot Fair. more than the Oscars. I think it was a case of a film. That was the film that kind of got dinged by the Oscars moving up earlier than they, this was. That was the first year that the Oscars were held in like late February versus late March. Okay. Um, and that was the film didn't even go into wide release until mid January, right. and I think it was a situation. And again, I mean, Return of the King was going to win everything anyway, so I'm mean, yeah. kidding. It's not um, like it's a slouch year. I yeah, mean, this exactly. is Lost yeah, in River, Translation, lost, yeah. Master and Commander. Uh, it could have replaced Sea Biscuit. Um, that is true. Uh, Monster was that year. There's just a lot. There's a well. It's not like it's a. Oh man, it's not 2008. Where you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, the cooler twenty one grams last summer. Yeah. There's like a lot of, lot of, lot of stuff going um, on here. But you're right. This was a film that was thought of as a possible Oscar contender in the run up to that season, and it it got geese solid reviews. It got strong buzz. It was not a huge hit, just because it was not a proverbial. You know, it was only a Tim Burton film in certain ways and i remember seeing it 
on opening night and I was genuinely shocked in a good way at seeing this Tim Burton film that was set on planet earth with real world locations with actors like Billy Crudup wearing normal suits and working in normal office buildings. And it was just such a jolt because I I have to think it's the first film he's made that feels set on a recognizable in in our world, basically. But for any other director, it would have felt otherworldly. But for Burton, it's a weird pivot. We kind of had to wonder at the time, it's like, oh, is this who Tim Burton's going to be now? I wish that would be nice. I mean, Uh, I I think, let me rephrase that. I think Burton has, you know, we're about 20 years out from the, you know, 19 years to the end here. Mm -hmm. I think he makes almost as many movies like this as what you might consider stereotypical Tim Burton cash-ins. Yeah. It's just, unfortunately, these films don't get the audiences right. that the big IP films do. So there becomes this this narrative that Tim Burton has sold out and only makes, you know, Tim Burton presents schlock from, you know, IP, yada, yada, yada. And part and of this is to hopefully dispel a lot of that for people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ideally, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's not to skip ahead here, but even though I'd say his batting average is not as consistent over the next 20 years as it was in the first 15 years, I'd say it's pretty much, you know, one for me, one for them mm-hmm. for most of the rest of his career up to this point. And sometimes and, the one for them are all right. Yeah. Like the next one we're talking about, which mm-hmm. I think is fine. Um, but as far as big fish, it's, I mean, simplistically speaking, it's about a, a, a man who's living a normal life with a normal you know, family. His father is dying and he's always had a complicated relationship with his father because he feels the father likes to spin these tall tales about his past. Right. And while that may be harmless, he feels that it has robbed him of the chance to know who his father really was because all of these stories have been seemingly embellished. And it's through these flashbacks and these tall tales where Ewan McGregor plays the young version of Billy Crupp's father that we get, you know, a stereotypical Tim Burton mythology and visuals and then story elements um, in this story of a, a young man who joins a circus and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's very, the entire film is very bittersweet, intentionally so. I mean, Tim Burton's father had just died and it's, and his mother, uh, yeah, but he wasn't apparently. I, he wasn't close with either of them, but the the loss of them and this script landing at him at the same time connected. Yeah, and it it feels very therapeutic. And I, you could argue that a lot of his films are therapeutic, especially you know Edward Scissorhands for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but this certainly, you're right. I would go back to what you said because I think you know there was sort of a is this what Tim Burton's going to, you know, these are the kind of films that he's going to make for the next decade or so. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that, you know, Steven Spielberg sort of got to a point, and this is neither good nor bad, where he stopped making movies about the underdog and started making movies about virtuous representations of the man. Right. Um, Which is funny because Spiel- <laughs> Spielberg was going to do this movie after Minority Report with Jack Nicholson in the lead. Um, and then it was Burton with Nicholson the lead, and then he was convinced to take McGregor and Finney um, over because they were going to do Nicholson, and then they were going to try to do some sort of de aging with Nicholson back then. 
because there was I'm glad they, they didn't. They didn't artistically. Feel the, they didn't feel the Finney part was worth hiring Nicholson for. Um, for just that, you don't get Jack to just do that. It's like, well, I bet Jack would have done it, but um, um, it's yeah. So this and the, yeah. Well, no, and I, I think it's to the film's benefit that it is mostly headlined by actors that you don't necessarily associate with the Tim Burton trope. Yeah, trope. no, well, yeah, Excuse definitely, me, definitely. Uh, you know, Billy Crudup, who had just done Almost Famous. Um, the ones that you do are in the back. Danny DeVito is yes, not much of and, it. And, um, uh, Helena Bonham Carter, they aren't in front of the movie, front and center of the movie, and the details. The film sort of dawdles along intentionally. It's it's what I like to call a lazy river movie, where you're just relishing the time spent in this world. Um, but then, of course, you know, the last two or three scenes of the picture are just knockout punches to the ass. Uh, <laughs> Dude, I, I tell you, the, the end of this movie hits me in the feet, the way they hit oh, yeah. me in the feels. Cause when, and, and I know the exact moment it does it and, and it's probably a lot of people's, but uh, it's at the funeral when the car pulls up and the giant gets out and then DeVito gets out, but it's when DeVito approaches him to walk next to him i just like there's a look on devito's face that's oh just yeah incredible and even the scene before that when you know his father's dying and he's sort of fantasizing about racing him out of the hospital for this final adventure where mm-hmm. you know everybody that he knew was there to see him off to the afterlife and that i'll be honest i wept like a you know i wept like a baby yeah um, and I, I think that was part of the part that you know i just graduated from college and i sort of was getting to that point in my life where i was more impressed by I, I was less moved by tragedy and sadness than by unexpected acts of goodness right you know and to use an obvious lazy example you know the part that makes you cry in return to the king is when everybody bows to the hobbits right um or you know the, and this is all the same like month so i don't know if, have you ever seen in america Oh, I can't remember. If you haven't, then I will not say much further. Okay. It's a very sweet melodrama mm-hmm. about immigrants trying to make their way in America in the, I think, early eighties. If you get the, if you get a chance, it's very good. Okay. And there's a scene at the end that just kills me every time. Gotcha. Uh, it's earned. I mean, it's 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 an earned, it's an earned moment. Um, and if anyone's listening to this that has seen the movie, they know exactly the scene I'm talking about. Gotcha. Yeah, I, then I know the title, but yeah, like, no, no, it's, check it's, that out or not? I'm, I'm guessing not, but um, but and then Big Fish, which I, I think mm-hmm. the last two or three scenes are just absolutely magnificent old school tearjerkers. Yeah, um, and I wish the film had done a little bit better. I wish it had a slightly higher profile because again, I would have liked to have seen even more of these kind of slightly outside, you know, uh, I mean, a Tim Burton film almost by definition colors outside the lines, but colors outside of his lines, I guess. Um, Especially as we get to the 2000s and and especially the 2010s when the things that once made Burton so unique and, 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 you know, unconventional have started to become standard form for the Hollywood blockbuster. Well, and Um, also standard form for the Hollywood and nobody pushing back as much on him doing his thing or true, you know, like just they're bringing him in to let him go loose. Yes. And you know, it's, 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 there's, um, but I think big fish is a wonderful, Mm -hmm. insightful, moving melodrama. Yeah. And I think it's one of his best films. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's very, I I liked it. There's an anthology like quality to it. Um, so, and, 
I didn't think about this until prepping for this. It's Forrest Gump like with yeah. um things and one a critic was a critic mentioned that it was it's like Forrest Gump without the bogus theme park politics. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it is. It, it's got that Forrest and there's Benjamin Button that comes a few years later that also has that Gump quality, but that's written by the Gump guy. It's like Benjamin Button, but not boring. But not get me started that movie is i've tried <laughs> i've tried and i just it doesn't i do, it doesn't hit with me i it's a i well made well acted say film that i just about, don't like yeah say what you will about forrest gump's politics but at least that movie is certifiably nuts yeah i mean uh, i loved it then and i love it now and yeah right. it's politics you know it's i think it's it's a situation of it's another example of, I would argue to a certain extent, you know, uh, uh, empathetic films made by empathetic filmmakers that are sometimes consumed by unempathetic people. Mm. And yeah. I think, not to make this too much about Forrest Gump, but I think that's a movie that if you take it as this ghoulishly macabre black comedy that's almost a satire on American exceptionalism, yeah. the idea that this this all due respect, Simpleton lucks his way through both American history and unthinkable success. It's almost like that episode of, of The Simpsons called you know, Homer's Enemy, yeah. where this one guy who just becomes incredibly jealous of Homer because he realizes that Homer is, has the American dream and he hasn't earned any of it. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you can look at Forrest Gump as this weird version of, you know, the luckiest man on earth, but he's brings doom, despair, and misery to right. everyone and comes in contact with. True. And I, I just, I don't think and there, there's all these reads into Forrest Gump which I think just come as a defense mechanism to promote Pulp Fiction as a better movie and I, I think, think that, eventually that was the case I don't think it helped that Bob Dole singled out Forrest Gump when he was talking about wholesome family-friendly Hollywood movies right uh, this was in the summer of 94 when he was just starting to possibly maybe consider running for president right and I, I do think the film has a following among you know politically conservative people and there's a certain there's a case to be made the film is not super ideal not super thrilled with certain elements of the 1960s right but i think it's a matter of i don't think it's thrown in your face either like i think people like i don't think for like i think one i don't think forrest gump is as deep as people think it is, but I also don't think it's as dumb as people yeah. kind of think it is. I like, think it's a situation where if the film hadn't become a massive, super-duper mega blockbuster, it's questionable or complicated politics wouldn't have been the source of no. a huge part of the conversation. I so think it was meant to be this, this like, goofy, macabre black comedy that they thought maybe would make 200 worldwide because Tom Hanks was on a streak and they thought it'd be counter-programming for The Lion King and True Lies. It was literally mm-hmm. sandwiched between those two films. And when it became a giant piece of pop culture zeitgeist, yep. part of the job culture zeitgeist, then it got put under a microscope for better yep. or worse. I think it was meant to be mostly neutral and yeah. then just things that weren't just thought about became thought about. And they're like, yeah, well, Okay. But Big Fish has none of those issues. No, Big Fish doesn't have it does those not, issues. It does not risk infant, uh, infantilizing. I screwed that one up. Infantilizing the 1960s civil rights slash anti-war movements. No, so uh-huh. good on good on them for that. Good on them. Yeah, uh, and you, <laughs> we mentioned with this too. This flash that it's a more regular Burton film, but like 
many of his hallmarks are here as well as his stylish oh, yeah. his stylish ones, but they're done in such creative ways that fit. Like there's a suburbia shot that feels right out of Edward Scissorhands. And what helps here too is the they're presented he's able to present things uh that are not as extremely extravagant that so that the son can see when uh the funeral scene at the end that his father's stories weren't far from the truth or were based in some truth. So like whenever, when the giant shows up, you see the guy, you're like, okay, he exaggerated a little bit, but holy crap, that's a big man. And yeah. uh, Danny DeVito. So it's like, it's like, it's like what maybe my father wasn't be, you know, everybody he, stretches a story out. Yeah. The, 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 I would argue the revelation that, that character has is that it's he got more of the truth than he thought he did from his father. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, and that's that's you know it's it's a good one. Yeah, it's a, it hits you in the feels. I also want to point out Allison Lohman. What a great ringer for Jessica Lang for oh, this God, movie, yeah. and a great year for her too. She uh, also had Ridley Scott's Matchstick Man, which is one of my favorite Ridley Scott films, and oh, she, yeah. she was also wonderful. Uh, Drag Me to Hell. The years later, and just sort of fell off. The, I think she teaches acting now, but like, damn you people for not using more Allison Lohman because she is wonderful. Yeah. And this is kind of her. She had White Oleander, but this kind of broke her out even more. Um, but good year for her. Um, everybody's wonderful in this movie. It's like, put it on with like your family. Like, it is just any time is a good time for Big Fish. It's a sweet movie. It's nifty, and it's one that'll stick out in his filmography. Um, it's just this—I don't know. It's—it's—it's it's, it's interesting. It's him, but it's not, and it's yeah, it's great. You yeah, and McGregor in a, a in a <laughs> Tim Burton film. Yeah, and he's as good here as he is in any of his other more high-profile pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's 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 one of my favorite Burton pictures. Yeah, it's and I. And the fact that it's, you know, unique among the filmography only enhances its reputation. And when you don't have to rush out franchise pictures all the time, actors can be happy like a Ewan McGregor can do a big fish mm-hmm. while doing franchise movies well, and, and stuff. And that's one reason why, you know, Hugh Jackman was willing to play Wolverine for, you know, 16, 17 years. Right. Because, you know, for a while they were only making him once every three years, so he had plenty of time to host the Tonys, host the Oscars, make the prestige, do Les Miserables, mm-hmm. you know, do the man from, uh, crap, the boy from, uh, <laughs> damn it, the, the play that he won Tonys for, the, the whatever, I'll oh, look okay. it up later. Not the music man. That was many years later. No. But uh, you know, like you're there's a reason why your your Oscar Isaacs or your Daniel Radcliffe's are hesitant to join franchises because you know, those Harry Potter kids, that was twelve yeah. years of their life in a row. And and, and Oscar Isaac Star Wars, well, when they're two years apart, the the one in between is filming the other one. Yeah, pretty much. You know? That's what, you know, Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth have had to deal with that specifically, you know, and Robert Downey Jr., where it went from, you know, normally, oh, I'll do an Iron Man every two to three years. That's fine. To shit, I have to do one of these like all the time. Well, in Evans' case, his workout regime he had to keep up with for yeah. that long. It's in eating. It's like he wants to live a little. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
but but yes, Big Fish didn't require Boy from Oz. Gosh darn it. Okay, but Big Fish, no, didn't require anybody to stay in shape or, you know, those regimes or come back for a sequel. But And in fact, if you want to get into a little gossip, one of the reasons Jessica Lang got the role is that allegedly she was one of the few actresses of that age range that actually looked her age and didn't obviously have work done. Oh, Think of that way you will. All right. Well, hey, good on her. Good on her. Uh, but she has always defied odds in Hollywood since her start. Um, this is true. Un- unfairly being, you know, you think yeah. like, the bullying started with online people. There's a lot of critics you can shame on to <laughs> back then. Um, rather than uh, like, Never read any profile of any actress from the 2000s. No. <laughs> nope. Um, okay. So, speaking of reading, uh, apparently Tim Burton Company did some more reading. Uh, for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, our next film directed That's by the best segue you've got. Speaking of reading, speaking of it, was a book from the <laughs> a book, a book from the screenwriter of You Only Live Twice. Shit, that is true. The man that basically made the James Bond franchise what it is yeah. because he went nuts and nobody said, Pull back, pull back. You can enter a world where everything is delicious. Don't lick my boat. Gonna make it all sticky. Okay. Nothing is nutritious. Violet, you're turning violet. And four children are very bestie friends. Best friends. Malicious. (laughs) From director Tim Burton. They're testing to see if she's a bad night. Johnny Depp. You're really weird. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Rated PG. In theaters and IMAX this Friday. So this one, you know, Bert, Burton, of course, directs. It's written by John August, like the other, all the films today, from a book by Roald Dahl, starring Johnny Depp, Freddie Highmore, David Kelly, Helena Barnum Carter, Noah Taylor, who is not Ben Mendelsohn. Um... <laughs> Missy Pyle, James Fox, Deep Roy, Christopher Lee, Adam Godley, Francisca Trogner, Anna Sophia Robb, Julia Winter, Jordan Fry, and Philip Weigratz. A young boy wins a tour through the most magnificent chocolate factory in the world, led by the world's most unusual candy maker. Now, before we start this, this movie, it's been 17 years since this movie came out. Yes. It... There's probably a current reputation or thought from it when it comes up, but I want to remind people, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was one of the highest grossing films of 2005. It was a very well-reviewed movie and received an A-minus cinema score. It so, made about $470 million worldwide. That was a lot more than Batman Begins that year. And off the top of my head, I think it was behind only Harry Potter 4, Revenge of the Sith. Uh, well, no, actually, it's behind quite a few things. You had King Kong. and it was Anyway, King Kong, Narnia, uh, Star Wars, Harry Potter. Um, but after those, then, yeah. But hey- <laughs> Top but, top ten, top eight. Yeah, but there's and a it, lot. You know, yeah. It was you know it had a fifty six million dollar opening weekend. It was you know it crossed two hundred million domestic. Again, it made more than Batman Begins here and abroad. And without skipping too far ahead, you know the the pre release chatter was kind of insane for this film mm-hmm. because you had pundits and people that should have known better arguing that 
parents are going to be unwilling to take their kids to see it because Johnny Depp's Willy Wonka looked too much like Michael Jackson, which yeah. would scare off parents because even back then there were conversations about you know, allegations involving child molestation and or abuse from Michael Jackson, who, of course, would die four years later. But I digress. Yeah. Um, and of course, that turned out to be absolutely fucking ridiculous. Yep. Uh, when you see the film, he's nothing like Michael Jackson. He hates there, children, which there, is actually there's some, okay. There, there's some. I I I I know it's not the intention. Yeah. I could imagine if Michael Jackson had kids dropped off at his house and parents wanted, <laughs> and parents and parents wanted to stay and he wasn't prepared for that like he was the babysitter but the parents stayed not that I'm not saying Michael Jackson was intended to molest children but I'm just saying like I'm not good with he, adults he might I don't kill know them how in to his talk. chocolate factory Yeah I don't know I'm not good with adults I don't know how to talk to them I believe intentionally or unintentionally I can see some Michael Jackson in this. That's fair. That's fair. Um, not in ways that they're saying. No, not, yeah, but exactly. I can see this. Um, but nonetheless, any concerns about the film's commercial potential were, were completely ridiculous. The movie opened with $56 million at its opening weekend, which was one of the biggest non-sequel openings of all time, even mm-hmm. at that point in history. Um, and as far as the movie, I think it's fine. Do I think it's overall as good of a movie as the 1971 version with Gene Wilder? Not necessarily, but I think, if I'm honest with myself, I think Wilder is the only element, one of the few elements that is vastly superior to this picture, to this second picture. I think the first third, before they get to the chocolate factory, is actually a lot better in this version. Uh, maybe that's because it's more colorful and brighter and all that jazz. And I, I do think that the chocolate factory stuff itself is fine. Uh, I do think it it falters a little bit in terms of trying to be so faithful to the novel that it barely has an ending. So it kind of has to invent an ending. Mm-hmm. And, you know, say what you will about, and you know, the 71 version is terrific, but the Slugworth thing was was invented for the movie so that Charlie had to make a choice in order to advance to the, to the end. Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of screenwriting and storytelling, that's actually a terrific addition. Yes. Um, but, you know, it's a visual delight. I remember I saw it on IMAX at a midnight screening and it was 185. So it took up the entire IMAX. Screen. Oh, yeah. And let me tell you, that's a that's a movie that played very well on a giant ass IMAX screen. Burton likes to shoot 185. That's he what does. I like. And I think 185 has become a highly uh, underappreciated uh, format because everybody does the 235, but not everybody knows how to shoot for it. They just know that big, serious movies from back in mm-hmm. the day were shot in 235. But I'm like, 185 can be pretty damn good, and Burton's very good at shooting 185. And it's weird, if I may... When I periodically will watch bits and pieces of the first Avengers, mm-hmm. which of course was shot in 185. Right, yep. It actually looks and feels bigger than some of its much bigger and, and more expensive predecessors. Mm-hmm. But there Russo's. is a sense of scale. Russo's. Um, there is a certain sense of scale and 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 maybe it's just old-fashioned filmmaking skill that mm-hmm. makes that film feel a lot bigger than its budget is, which, of course, was one reason why it was a huge hit. Yeah. Um, but I do think that's a film that benefited from the taller aspect ratio. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, this will, this movie, when revisiting it, like, I'm like, this is, this is, this is pretty good. Isn't this supposed yeah. to be, like, a terrible one or whatever? <laughs> like, 
I'm like, this is not bad at all. Like, it's a, we have another musical from Tim Burton, and I like the choice to go with this like psychedelic edge of the music, which would have been the music when the first movie was around. Or uh, um, yes, but uh, I kind of. I don't think he's replacing Gene Wilder's iteration anytime soon, but I kind of like Depp Swanka. Like he, oh, cracks, yeah. he cracks me up because he's kind of a shit, and he certain feel, he he totally feels. I'd, I'll give you this more than Gene Wilder's Wonka. He certainly feels like someone who's been secluded and not in any social situations with other people in a very long time. And oh, yeah. He okay. So Depp said he derived it from children's show hosts like. Uh, Captain Kangaroo and Mr. Rogers and like uh, various game show hosts as well. But I thought in this movie, since we've been going through the Tim Burton stuff, his relationship with the children in this movie reminded me of Pee Wee Herman and the bully type kids in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yeah, I can see that. It was very much like he didn't care what an adult will say, but when a kid does it, he's got to prove himself. And, you know, this is one of the few examples of a Raul Dahl. Did I pronounce that right? Raul Dahl. Raul That's Anyway. <laughs> Rest in peace. It's Raul Dahl, Mr. Blofeld. <laughs> a a Raul Dahl adaptation that was actually a commercial success, mm-hmm. which, you know, Netflix made this big deal a couple of years ago to do a bunch of Raul Dahl adaptations like – there's only one of these that really worked, and it was because it was a big budget Tim Burton fantasy starring Johnny mm-hmm. Depp back when that was a big deal. Yep, and it was based on the one book that everybody's read. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we'll see. Cool. Uh, but no, it's a it's a solid three star picture. Yep, it's, first it's, time Depp was immediately approved for a Burton movie. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, again, without getting into his off screen transgressions, it's another example of where he's not just doing shtick. He's making concerted specific choices Mm -hmm. and crafting a very real character. Yeah. You know, he's not phoning it in. He's not coasting on the makeup or the hat or whatever. Right. It's a genuinely compelling supporting turn. Yeah. Because it is a supporting performance. He doesn't show up to the first, you know, what third of the movie, give or take. Correct. Um, And I, I, it feel you know, better or worse than the the seventy one version. I mean, on one hand, it doesn't matter, but I will say no. that if it had had a better ending for Charlie, which to be fair, again, this is another situation where he's dealing with the death of his father and how that has affected him for obvious reasons, uh, and that sort of feels almost shoehorned in, mm-hmm. as well as what seems to be a quest to, you know, he put Vincent Price in his last movie and he damn sure was going to put Christopher Lee in his last movie. Yeah. Um, I don't think he pulled that one off. I'll have to double check. Um, To be fair, for a while, we thought Christopher Lee was going to live forever. Well, no, he, I mean, Christopher Lee was in Sleepy Hollow, then he's in this. He'll appear in our next film we talk about as well with the voice. voice. Um, So he's... he's, Was he in Frankenweenie? Can't remember. I should look that up. We'll know soon. Um... (laughs) But th- yeah, this one, uh, like, this is a film that like people is cash and cash and remake everything. The Dowell is the Royal Doll Estate wanted this movie because he wanted mm-hmm. this movie. He wanted like Stephen King with The Shining. He wanted a better adaptation of his book. So I hope he believed that he wrote the perfect adaptation of 
you only live twice because you hypocrite. So they were going to do this. <laughs> um, well, can, can, can the ghost of Kevin McClory still get the rights to that one too? Yeah. <laughs> but for Burton, and I'm I'm noticing this a bit of a theme here that's been kind of happening. It's another film like Planet of the Apes, I guess like Batman, uh, that was going through a lot of production, pre-production bef- and names before he took the helm. Like, yeah. I'm noticing he's he's picking up these things that were like sitting around forever. Like Mar- Martin Scorsese was once going to do this movie, so that You're makes kidding. sense. No, and he was was this, was this like a trade off for After Hours? <laughs> no, um, it, it, he was. So Burton was a late at late announcement. It was going to be him, but he decided to do The Aviator instead. And now this makes sense why Hugo exists. He was Martin Scorsese was looking oh. to do a children's family movie, apparently. So, um, uh, but there's a lot I mean, of other names. They, they were trying to make this since 1990. I'll have to say, of, of of all of the Martin Scorsese mob movies, Hugo is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's the best, yeah. Um, but, but yeah. So this, I I like the look of the movie. Uh, there's some of it that feels same samey to the 70s film, but that could just be some really clearly defined text being ad- adapted. Um, and yeah, I I think part of the problem people have is they there's a childhood staple and iconic performance being yes. redone here. So immediately the Dukes are up, even though Depp goes nowhere where Gene Wilder goes. And um, I think one reason why this film works, at least for me, is that he would Burton was not a huge fan of the 1971 right. version. And whether I disagree with that or not, and I, I do think that it's still a very good movie. Yeah. It didn't feel a similar situation as with Planet of the Apes, where it's like he was approaching a film that he loved and thought was this you know perfect masterpiece, but let's also do something else. Mm-hmm. You know, right or wrong, he felt there was room for improvement. Right. And uh, so you have him doing his thing. Yeah. I mean, the film has a lot of added depth and background, for better or for worse, in here. Uh, in a sense, in, in to maybe a lesser degree for people, but this is something reminded me of Nightmare Alley and then Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley from last year, where yes, essentially there's the same thing going on here, but the ones pumped more. Like they're both doing the same film, but they have different reasons to do that film. Yes, um, and they work together. Uh, in many ways, like they they work, um, and there's enough background of Willy Wonka, but sure, make a whole Timothy Chalamet film about. You know, I'm hearing good things about that one. Oh, well, well, good! The guy that directed the Baddington movies, and it's an True. original musical. And without getting too far off the reservation here, I mean, I think warner brothers tends to make big budget blockbusters or would-be blockbusters that are are on the whole pretty good okay especially when you move away from the complicated narrative of surrounding the dc comic stuff over the last decade i mean you're just as likely to get you know a kong skull island yeah you know or uh, the meg or ready player one which miracle of miracles is a good movie right uh, and you know, sure, that's because of Spielberg, but mm-hmm. they still got him to sign on the dotted line. They did, they did. Um, um, 
No, I I I was surprised going how much I enjoyed this uh, returning to it. I was I was hesitant about this one. I didn't remember not liking it back then, but you know, it's time isn't kind sometimes. And I going to this, I'm like, oh, I can watch this again easily. Like this is yeah. quite enjoyable. Um, and it's well directed, act like it's it's fun. Um, and. I really, like I said, I cracked up at Johnny Depp a bunch. Yeah, um, he's funny. He is. Uh, they don't um, force him to sing. Um, the, all the songs are Oompa Loompa, and then a little pre-recorded song uh, when all the characters melt down at the beginning. Uh, yeah, um, I. This is early. There's some early CG stuff in here too. That uh, better or worse, most of it holds up because he did a lot of practical. Um, uh, and while Scott and I are fans of this movie, apparently Gene Wilder not a fan, not a fan. Gene Wilder what? Gene Wilder was not a fan of this movie. Oh, I'm sure he wouldn't be, and I don't begrudge him that. I mean, it's, I mean, it's basically a movie that, at least in the mind of some of the filmmakers, existed because they weren't happy with the first one. You know, I'm sure Stanley Kubrick loved loved the TV version of The Shining that came I would have loved that in review. The late 90s. I would have loved that review. <laughs> Like, oh, I mean, my movie's good, but Steven Weber, wow. That's mean. He's perfectly good in the film. As a regular watcher of Wings, I was hesitant to see Weber <laughs> in the role, but... Oh, um, and, you know, to be fair, I mean, I like The Shining, but it's its its own weird, bonkers, bananas thing. I think the miniseries is a more faithful and more grounded adaptation of that same source material. Okay. You know, they can just like these two Willy Wonka films. They can sit side by side. They yes. are different enough. Yeah, that they both. You know, they pass the. You know, this one passes the Amazing Spider-Man test, which is that it's different enough from its predecessors that if you want to watch a film from this quote-unquote franchise, you might pick this one. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. All right. So, and it's not setting up a sequel or a franchise, isn't that? No, nice? they didn't do the Great Glass Elevator movie. No. They made the money uh, and they got the reviews to say, yeah, we could look into that, but they didn't. Just like Planet of the Apes, they did not. Well, that was because they knew they well, dodged a bullet. Yeah. True. I wonder why they did. I mean, I think there's, I think there's a complicated issue with the Great Glass Elevator rights. Okay. I don't know what they are. Gotcha. Maybe it was because Raul Dahl didn't like the first seventy-one movie and said no, never again. Mm. Um. I'm stalling for time to look it up. Yeah, <laughs> uh, curious. No, there's nothing here offhand. Fred, Freddie Highmore is great too. Is it yeah. Charlie? Uh, I really liked all the people. Like, and just using a. I'm not familiar with the actor who played the grandfather, but that's a. It's it's nice to see a bunch of fresh faces. He's using Missy Pyle a lot in roles. Uh, yes, here uh, in a run of stuff. So she's uh, David much- Kelly, who was in such films as. <laughs> Oh, Waking Ned Divine. That was one of, at least later in his life, that was one of his okay. more mainstream pictures. But he's he's a character actor. Gotcha, gotcha. I figured he had. I mean, he wasn't nobody. <laughs> I, I I am amused by you referring to. Uh, he would have been like seventy five at that point as a fresh face. Yes, <laughs> newcomer. <laughs> newcomer. Uh, uh, no, he he passed away in twenty twelve at the age of eighty two. Gotcha. The world did end. Uh, there for him. Um, <laughs> not bad, not bad. Uh, so uh, we, that's it. Without further ado, uh, we'll just move just to, like two months later for Tim Burton uh, and talk about the corpse or just 
Corpse Bride. If you think life is a party, well, hello. Hit it, boys. Oh. Wait till you discover the afterlife. Sounds creepy. Johnny Depp. There's been a mistake. Oh, I'm not dead. Oh. Roll over. Roll over. Good. Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. Rated PG. In Select City, September 16th, Star September 23rd, everywhere. Which he directs this time with animated. Uh, this one is written by John August, again, uh, with Caroline Thompson, Pamela Petler, uh, based on characters by Tim Burton and Carlos Grangel. Starring Johnny Depp, Helena Bonham Carter, Emily Watson, Jim Carrey, Tracy Ullman, Joanna Lumley, Paul Whitehouse, Albert Finney, Richard E. Grant, June Foray, Michael Goff, Christopher Lee, Kelsey Grammer, Danny Elfman, David Ogden Steers, Frank Welker, and Deep Roy. So Deep Roy doing a lot of work. He, Tim Burton likes working with the Deep Roy. Uh, Christopher Lee continues. Michael Goff continues. Um, you got Depp, Carter, just, yeah, all around. So when a shy groom practices his wedding vows in the inadvertent presence of a deceased young woman. She rises from the grave, assuming he has married her. Cool note here. This is uh, from the opening credit. This is early work by Leica Studios. Uh, this is their mm-hmm. first, first feature film contract work. Um, they had a short called Moon Girl the same year. Uh, they were previously known as Vinton, Will Vinton Studios, uh, from the late 90s through the 2005, but all they did was like commercials and little segments of things. This was their first. So if you're like, man, that Coraline stuff looks like Burton, they were working with Burton. Well, um, and of course, Coraline was directed by Henry Selleck. And Henry Selleck, who uh, <laughs> was Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, but two films within two months of each other. This is like James Wan with The Conjuring and Insidious, almost two, chapter yes. two almost. Uh, but. Production on this began during Big Fish and went on through Wonka when they was doing it, uh, with Johnny Depp recording both roles at the same time. During the day, he was Willy Wonka. At night, he was, um, uh, is it Victor? Um, Victor Van Dort. Yes. They do a little Victor Victoria nod here with the two names. Um, but, yeah, Scott, thoughts on Corpse Bride? I've always enjoyed this one more than Nightmare Before Christmas even though it's arguably a less flashy picture. Um, I just think the, the, the character arcs are more compelling. Every time I watch Nightmare Before Christmas, even as a kid, you know, we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. you know, he's a psychopath. <laughs> he's either totally deluded or he's just completely moronic. But even as a kid, it's like, why does he think this is going to work? What does he think is going to happen? Why should we, why are we rooting for him to do this? This is a terrible, terrible idea. Why would somebody tell him this is stupid? Uh, but anyway, this at least is a more you know conventional quote unquote narrative with characters that are actually wholly sympathetic, mm-hmm. and even the the slightly antagonistic character that is the corpse bride played by Alan Mom Carter, she certainly you know we under you know we we sympathize with her. She's a, she's a character of she's a person of pity. Um, the animation is gorgeous. Um, the songs are, are as catchy and memorable as an Before Christmas, but that's not a deal breaker. This is wedding day. This is <laughs> wedding day. Um, it feels better paced than an Before Christmas. That's a film that, in my opinion, just stops and starts and stops and starts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's another film that's like, I'm curious what made, you know, other than just pure artistic 
drive, you know, it's like, hey, I think I'll go back and make another stop motion animation film in the middle of these really big and or personal live action pictures. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure it was just that, you know, because he could and because he wanted to. And, you know, this film was released by Warner Brothers in late 2005. So it wasn't quite, I mean, it was a hit. I mean, it made more money than I remember for Christmas. You know, it made $118 million on a 40 budget. Yeah. And um, it could it was, probably it was, thank the reputation of Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, absolutely. Well. Yeah. yeah. But this was a, 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 high, a lower profile release, even though it was, you know, by any rational standards, it was a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, visually, you know, and this isn't a bold statement, but it, you know, the real world is dark, grim, and gray, while the right. underworld is bright and colorful and full of light. You know, the real world is dead, while the the world of the dead is alive. Some really easy to see subtlety, but it, yeah. it's good. Yeah. But again, it's a kids' film, so yeah. it's it's you know it's 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 very well acted. It's very well performed. Richard E. Grant is obviously having fun as the bad guy, mm-hmm. and you know I don't have that much to say about it because it's it wears its themes and its heart on its sleeve. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of hidden meaning other than you know what you see is what you get, mm-hmm. but what you get is relatively compelling. And I did rewatch this one because I hadn't seen it in many many years, and it does hold up. It's really it, quick too. It is yeah, not, yeah. It's it's, it's, it's about as long as Never Before Christmas. It's only seventy seven minutes with credits. Yeah, and it what struck me again about it this time is how unassuming it is. Mm-hmm. It's just this really good, really solid stop motion animation horror comedy, mm-hmm. and it's it's not, you know, it almost makes a point to be a non-event if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's all. Yeah, I'll let you talk because I've been babbling. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I we got another musical. We're gonna have three of those in a row uh, from Tim Burton, which is something you don't probably think of. Like he's done a bunch of musicals. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, this is back to, you know, this is his drawings come to life, um, doing the stop motion. Now the actors recorded together during this too. It's kind of crazy how well this works. And I, yeah, there's the, the two worlds are great. They're fun to watch. I love the Peter Laurie worm. It's like, oh, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a rather simple story. Like it's, it, there's not much to dig into to find. It is what it is. It's a, it's a fairy tale you know, we never really heard much. It works too well. I kind of I feel bad for the corpse bride herself. Her her redemption is like saving him, and then she's gone. But I I feel bad bad for her that Emily. Oh, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for her. What's happened to her and what where it goes? Because he yeah, decides. I mean, well, you know, I'm gonna. This is where I'm at right now. I'm gonna accept this, but. There's... Well, and she realizes that you know she can't be happy in a way that makes other people miserable. Right. And, you know, it's, it is poignant. Yeah. Because she is a victim through and through. Yeah. Um, continue to be alone in the dead world, which sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't time for, you know, Victor to go. And but. I think it's, it's a testament to how well the film works in that Victor and Victoria are almost immediately a sympathetic route for them couple mm-hmm. yeah. that you're almost rooting against the primary action of the film, which is right. Victor being kidnapped to the underworld and you know running around the world of the dead and experiences excites in yeah. a way that keeps you know basically denies us what we want, which is a reunite a you know reunion between this this happy couple. Yeah. And while yeah. our sympathy is certainly supposed to be with Emily, 
for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. She's also the woman that that is sort of the, the the woman that prevents that which we desire. Right. There's a there's a great with Victor and Victoria, especially when they first there's a great authenticity to the dialogue and the way it's performed. Yes, um, that that scene where they meet each other because they're a forced marriage, but have different different motives from each of them's parents as to why they want one wants wealth, one wants stature, uh, somewhat to get them married, um, and there's the, their media meeting of each other, and it's just like they're they're perfect for each other in the non perfect situation is what it feels, and you're immediately yes. drawn drawn to them. And don't like the step, the the missteps in the rehearsal, and all sorts of stuff. And um, yeah, you you generally are rooting because it's an honest incident with Victor. It's not like he pulled some sort of yes. purposeful mess that he's got to clean up. It's an it's an accident, and he almost accepts the accident. Just well, he's, he's, he's a, such he's a, a nice guy. Pushover. Yeah, he's yeah, a pushover. Pushover. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. But yeah, there's some funny moments in this. There's great, um, you know, Burton. Obviously, the the interesting world of the dead compared to the the living. I mean, there's more than just like one's lack of color and one's so colorful. There's like watching people go through everyday motions of like soulless jobs and stuff like that <laughs> um, compared to everybody partying down in the land of the dead, which is which is quite a, a interesting little contrast. Tim Burton's Titanic. Tim Burton's Titanic, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that I mean, there's yeah, there's not a whole. It's so quick, it's easy. I I like this one probably just as much as Nightmare Before Christmas. Like I, it's, it's yeah, it, it's different enough. The animations, like you know, it's Burton. You know, it's like that Nightmare Before Christmas, but it's not. Um, but yeah, I definitely I dig definitely, it. I dig it quite a bit. Um, dig it back up. Check it out. Uh, the film, just for reference, it made 118 million worldwide on a 40 budget. Yeah, let's, so yeah, let's, solid let's, hit. Let's talk about the box office of our three films because we didn't oh, stop well, to do that I with mean, each of them. So, uh, uh, Stain Boy, fish, how did that do? No, just kidding. That big, made big billions fish. and billions of dollars. Big Fish. Um, let's go with big that. Big Fish did 123, but it was on a 70 budget. Okay. Again, this was in the middle of the DVD boom, so you know it wasn't all despair and whatever. You know, I'm sure the film broke even in the end. Yeah. Um, so, and again, it's not like they were trying to make a franchise. Again, they weren't trying to make a franchise out of it. So you can right. have these one and done pictures that barely squeak by and no harm, no foul. Very true. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory made $475 million on a oh. 150 budget. Okay. Um, and then the Corpse Bride made 118 on 40. Gotcha. Everlasting legacy. That's when back when that was like, hey, good job. And it's like, no, yeah, exactly. Now it's like, not enough. Um, so. No, I, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, you know, it used to be enough for this movie to make money in relation to expectations and budget. And mm-hmm. then you move on to the next movie. Right. Each one's this little small business. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the advantage that streaming, of course, has over theatrical is that they don't have to treat it. You know, it's all one giant, you know, it's a salad bar. It's a buffet. Right. You know, the very fact that they have the new Muslim McCarthy movie is of value even regardless of whether anyone likes or watches that new Mills McCarthy movie. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, I don't mean to pick on her. Just, it's Adam Sandler, same thing. Yeah. 
Um, and, um, but for, you know, for theaters and for studios, it's each film is its own little business mm-hmm. that is, you know, successful or not successful by its almost by itself. True. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. But yeah, so that'll, that'll do it for this fifth installment here. We've got two more and then one for Wednesday coming after uh, the this. Um, so next time we're doing what I call Sweeney to Weenie, as we'll be talking oh. about Sweeney Todd, uh, jump-starting a Disney trend with Alice in Wonderland, uh, doing finally doing Dark Shadows. I believe that was a big uh, something hanging around. We'll talk more about that. And then another animated one with Frankenweenie, the second coming of Frankenweenie. Um, that'll be our next installment, part six. Stay tuned. Uh, we also... Should be joined by um, a friend of the show and frequent guest Sabina Graves for that one. If not, then that didn't happen, and we still love you, Sabina. So, uh, Scott, mm. Scott, you got a new new place to find you now. So, well, hopefully, up. I'll have a uh, bigger stack of articles by the time you actually watch or listen to this because I just started at the wrap uh, three days ago. Mm-hmm. And right now, I'm basically helping them with the breaking news while s- slowly doing. You know my my own quote unquote deep dives. My words, not theirs. Um, so hopefully, I'll have more of those along with the whatever else needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, therap.com. and you know my Forbes archive is not going to vanish off the face of the earth. You can still go and read them there, and you know I don't get paid for that anymore, but that's fine. Um, and I'll still be on Twitter at Scott Mendelson. All right. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brand4KUHD, written work at YSOBlue.com. There's more from the Brand Peter Show this week. There's old Space Show Night Rider going on. Check that out. Uh, but yes, yeah, Scott and I will be back for more Burton. Until then, stay film positive. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peter Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Osman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.